Great, we're on the next uh, sermon on the Impossible series, and today we're talking about things that are made possible through the Holy Spirit, which would otherwise be impossible. And last week, Craig did an excellent job describing for us who the Holy Spirit is and what He does for us as Christians, but we don't want that to remain simply as knowledge in our minds, as some sort of theoretical knowledge. So today and next week, we're going to be answering this question. How do we receive the fullness of what the Holy Spirit has to offer? And just to, to, to make the point that I think everybody in this room will be on a slightly different place on the map when it comes to answering that question. If I asked that question to you, one person would probably say, well, you need to be born again. Someone else would say, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Someone else would say, you need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be clothed with the power of the Spirit. But what do all of these different phrases mean? And what are they referring to? Do they refer to the same thing? Are they separate experiences? Are they things that happen at the same time? Do some of them happen as repeated experiences? And we're going to try and answer that, we're not going to try, we are going to answer that question in the next two weeks, and next, next week we're going to move on even more into the, the practicalities of how do we receive the fullness of what the Holy Spirit has to offer. Today is going to be slightly more theologically based, more um, based on, the, on the Bible initially, and I think that that's a good thing because we all do have um, so many different thoughts and ideas about this. Most of the positions... Um, regarding this question fall into two broad categories. The first category is mostly evangelical Christians and they hold that spirit baptism is what happens when you're born again. In other words, when you're converted or recreated or received Jesus, whatever phrase you happen to be comfortable with. So being baptized in the Holy Spirit equals being born again. And evangelicals um, take note of the incredible things that happen when a person is born again. And when you think of it, it really is amazing because before the Holy Spirit couldn't live in you because you were dead to God. And so what happens is the Holy Spirit, this amazing power of the Holy Spirit, identifies us with the death of Jesus Christ so that our old self dies with Christ and we are then raised with Christ just as He was to become a new person and a new creation so that the Holy Spirit can come and dwell in us so that we can become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the, the evangelical is just blown away, away by these truths but tends to focus on them a lot. He thinks of, of the fact that, for example, you've been translated from darkness to light. That you were a slave to sin, but now you're a child of God. That you were a rebel, an enemy of God, and now you become a son or a daughter of God. But the problem with that position is that most evangelical Christians reject or even ignore um, as not being normal or normative experiences of the Holy Spirit like those that are described in the Acts of the Apostles when there was a tangible and powerful evidence of the Holy Spirit having baptized or filled people. And part of the problem with that, I think, and I know because I've been in this place myself, is that we, we say, yes, um, being baptized with the Holy Spirit is being born again. And if God wants to give us a day of Pentecost kind of experience, 
for those who've never heard about it, the day of Pentecost was the day when the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples and they started to speak in tongues. They were acting in such a way that people thought they were drunk. They had flames of fire on their head. Um, and the, 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 the problem is that we would say, or evangelicals would say, if, um, if God wants to do that, He will. Um, but the primary thing is being born again. That's the most amazing thing. And the challenge is that if I say, yes, I've been born again, and if God wants to, He can do a day of Pentecost type thing with me, then I don't really eagerly expect it. I don't eagerly desire it. It's not something that I'm looking for. And so generally, God doesn't give us things that we don't ask for, that we don't eagerly desire, that we don't express faith for. And so that is part of the problem with the evangelical position. Then the other position is one that's held generally by the Pentecostals and the Charismatics. They believe that spirit baptism is what happens when someone has a day of Pentecost type of experience. So Pentecostals and Charismatics, they tend to emphasize that powerful work of the Holy Spirit. But they, don't, they tend to downplay what happens when someone is born again. And so they would downplay things like the fruit of the Spirit, the amazing things that happen when someone is born again. They don't see that as a means of motivation, as a, an, an engine for change in your life, because what they're looking for is the powerful clothing of the Holy Spirit. Which position is correct? And I've come to believe that both positions elevate one particular truth whilst neglecting the other. And I don't think that we need to be forced between those two, to choose between those two positions. I think this is a case of both and. I believe that God used the Pentecostal movement to restore vital truths to the church and that we need to hold in balance all the truth about the fullness of what the Holy Spirit has to offer. Now you might think that I'm trying to please everybody, that I'm trying to be a people pleaser. And so what I'd like to do now is just to show you from Scripture that we should be seeking to, to uh, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in both of those ways. And I'm going to provide evidence for that just so that you can see that I'm not trying to be politically correct. So let's start with something that John the Baptist said. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. From this we see that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this truth was confirmed by Jesus himself after his resurrection. He was spending some time with the disciples having a meal, um, and this is what he said. While he was eating with them, he gave them this, this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now in both of these passages that I showed you, the same Greek phrase, baptizane in eumatai, is used. And that means to baptize with, in, or by the Holy Spirit. That preposition there, in, or can be translated with, in, or by. 
Um, and often it's the context that will tell you which is correct. So, there are seven verses in the New Testament which use that Greek phrase. Four of the seven verses are in the Gospels, and they predict that Jesus would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. So we can't get away from that. Jesus said, I'm going to baptize my followers with the Holy Spirit. Two verses are from Acts, um, and they refer to what happened on the day of Pentecost, when the, the disciples and the other 120 people with them received the Holy Spirit with power. And then the seventh is in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. And I'd like to begin with this verse in order to present, to show the evangelical side of things. Um, and just to simplify things, I'm going to start referring to the evangelical position as earnest evangelical. Because evangelical people have got a certain DNA that makes them very earnest. They do not float around above the frilly edge of Christianity. In some ways, that's what they believe. <laughs> um, so, have a look at this verse. The body is a unit, and though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, listen to this, into one body. And from this, we see that one of the effects of baptism in the spirit is becoming a member of Christ's body. And based on that, early the evangelical would say that baptism of the Spirit is what happens when you get converted. So, we're baptized by the Spirit and it places us in the body of Christ. So, on the basis of that verse, the evangelical will say that baptism of the Spirit equals conversion or being born again. Now, it's likely that Ernie would turn to a whole raft of verses which show that incredible things happen when a person is converted. And none of, uh, none of these things could happen without a massive working of the Holy Spirit. So let's just have a quick look at some of them. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does the rebirthing, the person enters the kingdom of God. Titus 3, verse 5 to 7. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Spirit, who He poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Romans 15, verse 16. Proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let's keep going. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16, Paul contrasts believers and unbelievers in terms of having the Spirit. And then in 8, Romans 8, verse 9, he says, If anyone does not have the Spirit, then they do not belong to Christ the Lord. So you can see that there is a tremendous working of the Holy Spirit that happens when somebody is born again. And on the basis of that, 
Ernie would say baptism of the Spirit equals conversion, being born again, being regenerated, whatever word you use. Enter Phil, the Pentecostal. Hang on a moment, exclaims Phil. <laughs> Isn't the baptism of the Holy Spirit what happened on the day of Pentecost? At this stage, he'd probably pull out his Bible and read two of the verses where that phrase, baptizane pneumatai, clearly refers to what happened on the day of Pentecost. Now this is a problem for Ernie, because the twelve apostles were already converted by the day of Pentecost. And yet according to his theology, baptism of the Holy Spirit should happen at conversion. Do you get that? That there shouldn't be a gap between being converted and being baptized in the Holy Spirit, because being converted is baptism in the Holy Spirit, or so Ernie would say. He's going to be reasoning things like this, well, if the Holy Spirit is a person, then I either have him or I don't. So are you saying that if I get baptized by the Holy Spirit after I've been converted, that before then I didn't have the Holy Spirit? It's a conundrum, isn't it? And then you'll probably say quite, um, quite provocatively to Phil, does that mean that the disciples didn't have the Holy Spirit before the day of Pentecost? Weren't they members of Christ's body before the day of Pentecost? And secretly, Ernie is probably wondering whether Phil is implying that he isn't a Christian because he hasn't had a day of Pentecost type of experience. Can you see how the tension starts to build? But Ernie has got a genuine problem because there are at least three cases in Acts where groups or individuals received the Holy Spirit after they had been converted. First of all, on the day of Pentecost, which I talked about, then during the Samaritan revival, the Samaritans were people who were closely aligned in faith to the Jews, but they were severely des despised by the Jews. And then there was the case of the Pharisee Saul, who became converted to Paul. And so, Ernest will go back to that particular evidence, which Phil has so kindly pointed him out, um, and he will try to account for this by uh, saying things like, well, you know, the disciples were unique because they believed in Jesus and they were converted before Jesus died and rose from the dead. But that's not normal for the rest of us. The, normal of the, the rest of us, we believe in Jesus and we get converted after Jesus died and rose from the dead. And he'll say something like, well, and the Samaritans, you know, they were also unique because they despised the Jews. And so God, in a sense, had to break the rules in order to convince the disciples that the Holy Spirit was for the Samaritans as well. And so Ernie will come to the conclusion that what happened on those occasions should not be considered normal for Christians today. He might also refer to an occasion when a Roman centurion called Cornelius uh, and his friends had a day of Pentecost type of experience and they got converted at the same time. Simultaneously, conversion, day of Pentecost type experience. Let me just give you some background to this. Cornelius was the first Gentile to be converted. Up until then, only Jews and Samaritans had received the gospel. In fact, the apostles hadn't even made an effort to evangelize non-Jews. So to prepare the apostles for this pivotal change, and, and folks, it was pivotal because we wouldn't be Christians today if it hadn't happened, God used several supernatural events to convince the apostle Paul, uh, Peter that it was okay to preach. 
to the Gentiles. And then when he started to preach, Cornelius and his household spontaneously broke out into tongues whilst Peter was, Peter was preaching. And this clearly indicated that they got converted and had a Pentecost type experience at the same moment. And you see, Bernie would say, Cornelius is proof that spirit baptism happens at conversion and from then on, that's how it happens. And folks, that was my position for a long time. I believe that we should preach the gospel, urging people to repent and teaching that they should be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then once they prayed to do that, they would, get the, they would be converted, in other words, baptized by the Holy Spirit. And if there was no powerful and tangible evidence that this had happened, I would assume that God had decided it wasn't necessary and that the greater, more powerful work had already been done on the inside where the evidence was invisible, both to me and to the person that had been converted. But there's a problem with this, folks. I've come to see this and it's been a, it's been a journey, it's been a humbling experience. If you have that approach where you say, yes, I'll preach the gospel, um, I'll pray with people to be converted, and if God chooses, He will give them a Pentecost experience. Generally what happens is you're not expecting it, you're not anticipating it, you're not desiring it. And what happens is that you then end up developing into a form of Christianity which doesn't have any power. And that's incredibly sad. Baptism of the Spirit is clearly intended to supernaturally empower us for the Great Commission. Look at this. After Jesus had been raised from the dead, he told the disciples, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Amen. In verse 47, Jesus is referring to what we now call the Great Commission, which is Christ's command to every Christian. And, and frankly, folks, that command which is to go into all the world, baptizing people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, teaching them what Jesus taught, Folks, if we don't have that as our central mission and our central focus, I don't know why we put up with life on earth. What's the point of being on this planet, with the misery of being on this planet, if we don't, if we're not sold out entirely for this great commission? What's the point of being in Zimbabwe? Why would you want to be here, going through all the, I was going to use a bad word, all the nonsense that we're going through, if you didn't have a purpose for it, if God didn't have a purpose for it? We... We need to be sold out for the Great Commission. Yeah. 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 We need to be extending the kingdom of seeking first the kingdom of God. And so we've been commanded, we've been given this Great Commission. Now listen to this. And to fulfill the Great Commission, we desperately need to be clothed with power from on high. That's why Jesus commanded that to the disciples. And do you think that we need that power any less than the disciples? I think if anything, we need it more. We need it more than that. We need to be clothed with power. 
And so how could I assume that since the powerful inner work of the Holy Spirit had been done, that one didn't need to urge people to seek the powerful outer work of the Holy Spirit, the clothing with power. Folks, we need to have a hunger for this. We need to have a hunger for the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not for our own sakes. It's for the sake of people that are lost. Throughout the gospel, you will see that when the gospel was preached, it was preached and it was accompanied by signs and wonders. Power that pointed people to a powerful God. And yet so often our ministries, my ministry um, has been characterized by a lack of power. It's not what God wants. Just reflect for a moment what this clothing of power did to Peter. And this is such an exciting story. Before he was clothed in power, he denied Jesus three times. Fast forward now to the day of Pentecost. Peter gets clothed with power. And then Peter and John are heading up to the temple to go and pray at three o'clock in the afternoon. As they enter one of the temple gates, a land beggar asks them for some money. And Peter's like, dude, I'm broke. I don't have any money with me. But what I do have, I'll give to you. And he helps him up and he prays for him to be healed in the name of Jesus. That lame beggar then goes walking into the temple and then he starts leaping around and praising God. Clothed with power. That, of course, draws a huge crowd. And Peter starts preaching to the very people who had crucified Christ. And tells them that they'd done the wrong thing. Because he himself was also clothed with power. And then the people, the, the authorities that had been responsible for crucifying Christ, they come and arrest Peter and John, throw them into prison, give them a whole night to think about what's going to happen. Because only a few weeks ago, those same authorities have crucified Jesus. And now, these guys have been thrown into prison, and they are preaching about Jesus and, and, re, and His resurrection. Don't you think they would have been afraid? Don't you think they would have been concerned? Far from it. Let me just read to you. Listen to these words because I think this is incredible. They hauled them out of prison, bring them before the same authorities that had crucified Jesus. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he'd been clothed with spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. Just being totally uncompromising. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and this man, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we can be saved. Now listen to this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Do you see what the clothing of the Holy Spirit does? They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man who had been healed standing there was with them, there was nothing they could say. <laughs> so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they've performed a miracle, a miraculous sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in His name. In other words, Jesus' name. 
And then they called them in again, and they commanded them not to, to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Wouldn't we want to be clothed in, in that kind of power? I do. Because the world desperately needs us to be people of power and people of the supernatural. Yes, it is amazing what happens on the inside when someone is born again. I'm not downplaying that, and I think sometimes Pentecostals have. But I think we need to hold both in balance, hold both in tension. Next thing, the next problem with, with, with what my stand used to be, is that the baptism of the Spirit is a felt experience with tangible evidence. Um, when people receive the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, Luke almost always records that there was some sort of evidence, both for the recipients and the onlookers. In other words, the person who, who was receiving it felt something, many different things I would imagine, um, but he felt something and people around could see that something had happened. And so it couldn't only be simply being born again, because that is an internal experience that does sometimes go with outer um, manifestations, but it's not like this felt experience which is tangible. And in most of the cases when, when Luke writes about this, um, it's recorded explicitly, um, Luke writing in the Acts of the Apostles, um, and in the rest the context implies very strongly that there was tangible evidence. So on the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire came to rest on each believer. They spoke in tongues and they behaved as though they were drunk. And Peter explained this using a prophecy from the Old Testament. He said, um, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So you can see there that the pouring out of the spirit is accompanied by supernatural manifestations. What about in Samaria? I talked about, this, about the Samaritans. A guy called Philip headed down to Samaria to go and evangelize them. And uh, he preached the word of God. Um, it was accompanied with signs of wonders. And a lot of people believed. They put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were born again. And they were baptized in water. And then later on, the apostles, Peter and John, when they heard about what was happening, they arrived sometime later, and they laid hands on the new believers and prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Luke writes that when Simon saw, so there must have been some sort of visible evidence, Simon was a, a sorcerer who in the past had made a lot of money out of this, uh, the Samaritan people. When he saw um, that the Holy Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, hoping that he could buy such a powerful ability. What about the road to Damascus? Saul was confronted by Jesus. He got converted, but he was blinded in the process. Three days later, God sent a faithful believer who lived in Damascus 
called Ananias, to pray for him, placed his hands on Paul, and prayed that he would see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. In other words, there was some form of tangible evidence. What about the Roman centurion, Cornelius? When they received the Spirit, the uncircumcised believers who come along with Peter, in other words, the Jews, who didn't think that this could be for non-Jews, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. And then explanation, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Tangible evidence. When Peter got back to Jerusalem, he had to try and convince the Jewish Christians that what had happened was genuine. And this is how Peter convinced them. He said, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. How did, God, how did the Holy Spirit came on, come on the disciples at the beginning? With power, with tangible evidence, with a clothing of power. And then lastly, last bit of evidence on this is Paul arrives in Ephesus. Now, before he arrived in Ephesus, there was a Jewish man called Apollos who had been preaching an incomplete message about God's ways. And so Paul needed to finish off the work of Apollos. But to do this, he needed to discern between those that had heard Apollos' incomplete teaching and those who had heard the full message from other Christian missionaries in Ephesus, like Priscilla and Aquila. They had come there from Rome. So how does he tell the difference between the two? Well, he simply asks a diagnostic question. You can go and read this in Acts. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's all he asked. He obviously assumed that receiving the Holy Spirit is a felt experience with tangible evidence because if they had received the Holy Spirit, he's assuming they would have known. And they would have said, yes, we received the Holy Spirit. This is what happened. So when they answered, no, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit, Paul told the people to believe in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So let's get back to the question that we asked in the beginning. How do we get the fullness of what the Holy Spirit has to offer? First thing, receive the Holy Spirit's converting power. And we preached a lot about this at Harvest. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're talking about receiving the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and I describe it there as an inner fullness. Now it's true that when you've received that fullness of the Holy Spirit in that way, that inner fullness, that you are uh, a fully, you're fully Christian, okay? You're going to heaven. You're, you're, an amazing thing has happened. And I know that the Pentecostals and the Charismatics sometimes downplay this. This is an incredible thing that has happened. But I think that we also need to seek to receive the Holy Spirit's clothing power. And we do this by earnestly seeking and praying for felt experiences with tangible evidence that we have been clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I call that receiving the outer fullness in a sense of the Holy Spirit. Just to give you an example of that, um, Gail got born again in a Baptist church down in Bulawayo, 
she went to a charismatic church everybody was praying in tongues there wasn't any order like like the order that's prescribed in um, in 1 corinthians uh, 14 yes and 12 and 14 um, and so she was really put off by that but then as her christian faith developed she was like surely there's there's got to be some power there's got to be some supernatural power Yes, there has been amazing supernatural power that's happened on the inside. I can see the evidence of that and the fruit of the Spirit. But what's, all, what's the story with all this, all the, all the miraculous, all the supernatural? Surely we still need that for today. And so she started asking God, please, please God, I have an experience where I am, in a sense, clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit, where I receive the outer fullness of the Holy Spirit. And it took a long time. It took a few years, actually, in her case. I don't, I don't think it needs to be the case for us. <laughs> but it took a few years. And then she was uh, out with a group of ladies out at Rest Haven. And she thought, let me ask these ladies if they would pray for me. And that was when she had that powerful clothing of the, of the Holy Spirit. Um, she's since then uh, operated in, in, in various gifts of the Spirit. Um, at the time, she spoke in tongues. Um, and there was this tangible evidence that, yes, I've been clothed in power. I can move forward now um, in a supernatural way. And so what we're going to do uh, next week is we're going to just talk a little bit more about the practicality of doing that. How do we actually receive that clothing of power? And then we're going to ask you, if you want to be clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit, to come forward. And uh, we're going to pray for you to be clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we as a church can move forward with the fullness of what God has intended for us. Yeah. And remember that the, the, the evangelicals, they haven't got it wrong. I believe they've got part of the truth. And they've brought incredible truth to the church. The Pentecostals and the, and the Charismatics, I don't think they've got it wrong. But I think they've emphasized one particular aspect of the truth. We want to be a church where we take both of these things together. Yeah. Where we are motivated by the, 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 the fact that we've been born again. That we are no longer slaves to sin, but we're also empowered to carry out the work of the gospel um, by the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? And I, and I would just say at this point, you know, if you have, if you have any questions, you know, please come and come and chat to me, or chat to Craig, or some, you know, come and come and chat to us about these things. Um, but I'm really looking forward to to actually just stepping forward in faith and believing God. He's going to clothe us in power as we move forward. Shall we pray? Father God, we, we just thank you so much that the, hope, that, that, that the Lord Jesus came so that we could be baptized in the Holy Spirit, so that we could receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit, everything that he has intended for us. And Father, we don't want to be um, a people who... Who are not excited about the Great Commission. We don't want to be a people who engage in the Great Commission but without the clothing of power that you intended us to have so that we could fulfill it the way you wanted us to. Father, we don't want our, our friends and our colleagues and the people that we come across to miss out on what you have for them because we're not clothed in power and we're not moving forward on the basis of, of faith and the supernatural. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you. We pray that as we prepare ourselves this week, um, that you would clothe us with power yeah. uh, as we come and, and seek it next week. We eagerly desire 
to be clothed with power. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.